The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. The President of the United States. May the rules be suspended. I would like to dispense with all red tape so I can answer questions directly. Unless there is objection, the rules of this Congress will be suspended. Gentlemen, I am here as a representative of the American people and there are of darkest despair. The people of this country are the roots of the nation, and the sturdy trunk, and the branches too. I ask for $4 billion to restore buying power, stimulate purchases, restore prosperity. You have wasted precious days and weeks and years in futile discussion. We need action, immediate and effective action. Mr. President, there is a movement in Congress for your impeachment. Hardly the time for making any requests, however small. Very well. I shall withdraw that request, but I would like to substitute another. I ask you gentlemen to declare a state of national emergence and to adjourn this Congress until normal conditions are restored. During the period of that adjournment, I shall assume full responsibility for the government. Mr. President, this is dictatorship. Senator Langham, words do not frighten me. But the United States of America is a democracy. We are not yet ready to give up the government of our father. You have given it up. You've turned your backs. You've closed your ears to the appeals of the people. You've been traitors to the concepts of democracy upon which this government was founded. I believe in democracy as Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln believed in democracy. And if what I plan to do in the name of the people makes me a dictator, then it is a dictatorship based on Jefferson's definition of democracy, a government for the greatest good of the greatest number. I think, gentlemen, you forget that I am still the president of these United States. And as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, it is within the rights of the president to declare the country under martial law. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, March 24th, 2016. I'm Bob Met, And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5130. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be he calls it the Trump derangement syndrome, which is a syndrome suffered not by Donald Trump himself, but by those who apparently irrationally fear Donald Trump. And there are still others who might apply the term to those who support Donald Trump, it's hard to say. And never before have I witnessed a debate quite like this one. What does it all mean? Are we doomed? Should Donald Trump ever be elected president? Well, you might be surprised at some of the dynamics of this in terms of what our in-studio guest today has to say in response to that question. Joining us today for the umpteenth time, I don't know how many times he's been here, he's a regular, Salim Mansour, Associate Professor of Political Science at Western University, Vice President of Council for Muslims Facing Tomorrow, and author of Delectable Lie, A Liberal Repudiation of Multiculturalism. Welcome to the show again, Salim. Thank you, Bob. Uh, before we hear your answer to that question and your first impressions, we want to just write, remind our uh, listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org 
Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5130, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Now, I thought we'd begin our discussion today on the Trump derangement syndrome, and from there we can expand our conversation into the more fundamental, basic, and real issues um, that our guests would like to bring to our attention. So, Salim, I imagine you're finding yourself in, in, a, in an interesting situation these days with the controversy that has that Trump basically has created, and that we're all, we've all been looking forward to in a case, but now some are looking at with, with abject terror. <laughs> What's yeah, your take on that? Th- th- that's quite right. There are humorous side to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are reading about people going to the psychotherapist and a massage parlor business has taken <laughs> off at places that we wouldn't think about, you know, people <laughs> who need to be taken care of. Why is it this man suddenly has become such a huge threat to the American way of life? I mean, those who see it as, uh, see him as a threat. But seriously, yes, I mean, uh, I recall that you and I sat down to talk about this just six months ago. That's right. Uh, middle of September. Mm-hmm. Uh, the primary season had not begun. The primary season began with the Iowa caucus in January. And we were talking about this at that time, that what is happening with Trump. And I mentioned something in the sense that this is a phenomenon much more than simply Trump, that here is a man who has come from outside uh, the political world, a man who's never been elected to any public office, uh, a business tycoon in New York, but whose presence has been in public life quite a bit. You know, people have gotten to know him from his television program and from his lifestyle. And he step, steps into the public arena, announces that he is going to seek uh, the Republican nomination. That was way back in June. It seems so long ago now. Uh-huh. Uh, and people didn't take him seriously. No, I was going to say the tone of the whole conversation has changed. The, the very people that were screaming about him have tempered their attitudes in certain ways, and other people who weren't screaming are starting to scream now. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. People never took him seriously. People were dismissive about him. I would say that particularly the gatekeepers of the Republican Party as ideologues, and something that we might want to discuss later on. The gatekeepers have a litmus test of who is going to be, who is a Republican, who is a conservative, who should be allowed, who should not be allowed, and so forth. And so here, Trump simply uh, did not fit in uh, their characterization of who should be a conservative or who is a conservative and who should be a member of the Republican Party. And they dismissed him. But lo and behold, uh, uh, the people started paying attention to him. The people which any political party need to get involved if they're going to win anything. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, politics is about the people, especially in a country like ours, a liberal democracy in Canada, in the United States, and so on. Now, that's a good question. Would you say that the U.S., for example, is it a republic or is it a democracy, or is it both? It is a republic. A republic. That's the form of uh, government. W- well, I mean, again, if you historically go back to it, nobody saw democracy as a good form of government. First, it was the question of liberalism, mm-hmm. that is about freedom. That is what it was articulated. Uh, But then, if you look at the debates that took place, and and those debates are laid out in in the Federalist paper, the form that was selected 
here's the Aristotelian uh, scheme. There is uh, the monarchy, there is the aristocracy, mm-hmm. and then there is uh, democracy. And, and democracy is the worst form of government because it lowers the standard, it brings in the mob, and so on well, and so there, forth. Well, there again, that's if the, if the definition of democracy is simply majority rule. Majority rule right, is which one part it, of it. But the main thing is appeal to the people. Is the people that is the basis of... Uh, 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 we the people, the sovereignty right. of the uh, Isn't that the what makes it a democracy? Precisely. Isn't that, isn't that what it means that, that, the, the, that the source of the government's power, never mind the voting uh, you know, details or how people vote or, or elect people, but the source of the government's power in a democracy, quote-unquote, comes from the people or with the consent of so the, the government. So the people are the sovereign. But right. it, one of the meaning or, or the meaning of sovereignty is that there is no higher law than what the sovereign decides. Correct. So who is going to constrain the sovereign? So is that this a is problem? A, this is the, no, this is not good and bad. The question goes all the way back to, say, Magna Carta. Mm-hmm. I mean, last year we, 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 we celebrated the 800th anniversary. Right. That you've got to find a way to constrain the sovereign so the sovereign doesn't run out unchecked. The sovereign doesn't give in to his whims and caprice. And, 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 and interfere with other people's sovereignty at the same time because it doesn't work anymore. One of the defining characteristics for democracy that I understand is that those who make the law are subject to the law. Precisely. And so, well. so how do you subject the people, constrain them? And that is where the question of republicanism comes in. First, is a rep- there's a constitution. See, from 1976, sorry, 1776, this is, by the way, the 240th anniversary of the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. But the American Republic came into being in 1789, 13 years later. With the written constitution. When when the constitution was passed. And then under the constitution, the first election was held, and George Washington becomes the president and is sworn into office in 1791. So America is the first model, in fact, the defining model of what is a Republican democracy. It is a democracy, we the people, but the people themselves are constrained by the Constitution. Precisely. But the Constitution, then, is not a straitjacket. The Constitution can be amended. So uh, uh, the contemporary debate that we go on to where those people who make the Constitution into a ideological doctrine and then they become the conservative ideologue. We have to distinguish them from those who see the Constitution as a document that that sets out the rules of how the people will affect their sovereignty. And the Constitution says, you know, you can amend this by such and such formula. Mm -hmm. Three-quarter of the vote, 75% of the vote, or two-third of the majority. So it is not simple majority, as you're talking, Bob. It is not 50 plus 1. There are bars that are set up. Of course. And, and so you have to work to get those numbers now, if you want to affect uh, change. Of course, having uh, the, the ability to amend the Constitution has been both a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, you can look at uh, 22, where basically uh, it, it outlined that everybody's a citizen, versus um, the prohibition. But then the repeal of prohibition. So it is, in, the, in a sense, a living document. So what would you say to people who are constitutionalists, who are rigid in their um, obeyance to a constitution without any um, room for discussion about what may be right or wrong. Well, uh, again, I will step back historically to to look at this matter. This issue has become, in a sense, 
uh, uh, very vibrant uh, over the last 25 years, quarter century. So if you put timelines on it, you know, uh, you know, it goes back to the late 1980s, early 1992, and we can even even give precise dates about this. You know, the debate around the appointment of Judge Bork and how the Democrats treated, and then subsequently that has become a very uh, 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 you know divisive issue. But uh, uh, about whether the Constitution is an original text, so the idea of originalism, and, and if you're going to read the Constitution in this argument, then you have to go back to the Founding Fathers and see what was their temper of mind and what was the context within which they wrote the Constitution. And therefore, you know, you have to recreate those arguments as opposed to, as you said, the living document that the Constitution is simply a document that sets the rule within which people will adapt and work. Now, these debates were debates within uh, and among the jurists and the lawyers and the legal theorists in universities and the academia. It was not in the public arena. This has become come into the public arena in a in a way that is, I think, something new. And and this is where I would make the distinction between those who become conservative ideologue. In our current time, I might say that one of the one of the divisive issue in this Trump derangement syndrome is that Trump is not a constitutional ideologue, and Cruz is a constitutional ideologue. Well, you know, that's a great point on which we'll take our break right now and listen to a couple of these constitutional <laughs> ideologues. On this side of the bumper, we'll hear from Brittany Pounders, a political commentator, blogger, an active proponent for the conservative movement, as she appeared in a telephone interview from Washington, D.C., with our own Andrew Lawton on his March 17th CFPL AM 980 broadcast. On the other side of the bumper, coming back, we'll be listening in to a February 18th Dave Rubin interview from the Rubin Report with Ben Shapiro, conservative pundit and publisher and speaker, etc. What both uh, Brittany Pounders and Ben Shapiro have in common, I think, is that they speak as conservatives on the right, and they, they're both rather terrified at the prospect of a Dom Donald Trump presidency. So let's listen in, and we'll hear what you have to say when we come back. And, you know, we have totally forgotten why we exist as a party, as a Republican party, and that is to elect conservative leaders to govern with a conservative philosophy. And a totalitarian fascist is far more dangerous than an inept and incompetent socialist or a Democrat-leading socialist like Hillary, who will be terrible, but we can largely undo whatever she, whatever she does while she's in office. And I cannot say comfortably the same thing about Trump. I'm just waiting for this whole thing with the media. Wait till they, they release everything they have on him. They start vetting him during the general. Every abortion, every mob connection, every dead body prostitute scam, everything is going to come tumbling out of that closet. Um, and, and where he really stands on all of the issues from eminent domain and supporting the federal confiscation of private property and the progressive tax rate that are so similar to Sanders, wholeheartedly supported by Elizabeth Warren just last week. Um, Single-payer health care, you guys are familiar with that. I mean, it's oh, so yeah. left that Obama couldn't get it passed. Immigration, he hedges his bet that his supporters cannot read policy because all of his, all his plan is is just touchback, gold-plated amnesty. So, I mean, can you even imagine Donald Trump getting any kind of thoughtful, comprehensive legislation through a very difficult and contentious Congress? It's, it's just a laughable idea.
think that there, there's a couple of things that I like about Trump. One is that he says things that are not politically incorrect. The problem with Trump is that he fails to distinguish politically correct from just being a jackass. So there, there is a difference. I mean, there's a difference between being rude and being politically incorrect. Right. Right. Be, being rude is is telling Megyn Kelly she's bleeding from her wherever. Being politically incorrect is saying that some immigrants who cross our southern border are criminals. That's politically incorrect, but it's not rude. The more I watch him, it really, you can whittle him down to some pretty basic stuff because he just says a lot of circular logic stuff and this person's great and that person's great and they love me and they hate me and that and that. And he was actually never really saying anything. Is well, that, this is what is that I sort of the genius? The, this, this is what I don't like about him and, and it is the genius of him because we live in a, a me culture and a me time and a me media. And so Trump is all about Trump and everything that he talks about is, I'm going to do this. I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make a great deal. I'm good for the blacks. I'm good for the Hispanic. Nowhere in there do I hear anything about what's the proper role of government in my life, which is the part that I care about, right? The part I don't care about Donald Trump. Right. I don't think he cares about me. I don't think that we should care about each other. Right. I want him to leave me alone. <laughs> I want Barack Obama. I want all these people to leave me alone so I can live so my life. So that's a conservative and, principle there. Just yes. Leave me alone. Yes. Just, just leave me alone. Like the government was not meant to do this many things. End of story. I mean, read the, the Constitution is very explicit about the things government is supposed to do, and pretty much nothing on Trump's list except for maybe border security is really something that the government ought to be doing. And, and the, again, what that comes down to, and this is the problem, is I think that what, the danger of Trump is that the left for a hundred years has fallen in love with the idea of the strong man. I mean, you go all the way back to Woodrow Wilson, and Woodrow Wilson is writing about the president should be the strongest man possible. The only limits on his power should be his vision, basically, which you know could come straight from Mussolini. And Woodrow Wilson was actually as close to, to a dictator as America has ever had. That's carried through to FDR, it's carried to LBJ, to Obama. On the right, at least they made overtures toward, we're not going to have the strong man who gets involved in your life and fixes all your problems. Trump is the strong man. And I think after, after so many years of a lot of Americans on the right feeling emasculated by President Obama telling them that they're racist, sexist, bigot, homophobes, and by Hillary Clinton telling them that we're, they're too kind of testosterone in, in orientation toward the world, I think that the, the response to Trump from the right has basically been he's the biggest swing and set of balls in the race. And because that's what he is, I'm for him. And you hear that from Trump supporters. Well, he'll do something. Maybe he will. Maybe he, I don't know. Yeah. Will it be good? Like, that's so, that's so, sort right. of my question. So as a conservative, though, so as a true yes. conservative, this must make you feel crazy, right? I mean, you must be really enraged at your own party because it's looking more and more every day like he's actually going to win. This. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know who to be the most pissed at, honestly. I mean, you've got, you've got the GOP establishment, which cannot get off the Jeb Bush train for the life of them and then just unify behind somebody like a Marco Rubio. And they hate Ted Cruz so much, they would side with Trump over Cruz, probably. Right, so Cruz to them is too far right. Right, right? Cruz, okay. and, and they think he's unelectable. And more than that, Cruz actually, I think, believes the things they say they believe. <laughs> so he says, I believe in a small government. I think that we should cut the government. I think the government shouldn't be important in people's lives. And the RNC, which makes its money off government being important to people's lives. I mean, how much money would you give to a political party if the government didn't matter in your life? Right. right? The RNC would raise zero dollars if no one cared what happened in Washington, D.C. And so Cruz scares them from that angle. I don't think Trump scares them. I think Trump Trump annoys the establishment, but he doesn't scare the establishment. Uh, so I'm annoyed at the establishment. I'm annoyed at, you know, Cruz is, is a very good constitutional conservative, but he's just an he's not a great candidate by any stretch of the imagination. And then there are the Trump people who are so populist and, and in love with the, the, the feel of Trump that they forget that, that this guy could actually be president. Like, if he's president, what is that going to look like? And that is the question we shall attempt to answer with the help of our guest, Salim Mansour. Salim, what did you think of what you just heard? Sounded 
very typical of the debate that's going on out there. Well, what's struck me and and what has become so strident is those who are opposing Trump, like Ben Shapiro, they have come to oppose him on the basis that Trump doesn't know anything about the Constitution. He doesn't know all the niceties about it, you Mm. know, and therefore we cannot trust him. And this is what goes back to my argument that these are the people who have turned the Constitution into an ideological doctrine, that they have become doctrinaire, they have become dogmatic, whereas the Constitution is there simply that belongs to the people and tells the people how they should frame their life and what are the constraints over there. And Trump, yes, he's not a lawyer, he's not a constitutional expert, but he is part of the people, we the people. And we the people are saying, this is who we want. We the people are the shareholders. And we the people are saying, we have given you guys enough time. We have given you the last, I go back to 1992, last 24 years. By the way, it's very interesting. The last time you had this stretch in American politics, you go back to 1932. 1932 to 1952 was a stretch of democratic control of the White House and the Congress. Yes. 1932 when FDR is elected, 1952 when Eisenhower is elected as a Republican. Now you have another stretch, 1992 when the GOP is defeated, that is Bush loses, and 2016. So 24 years in which you have the Bush two terms, the Obama two terms, and the Clinton two terms. And so the people are saying, we the shareholders are saying, that we have given you guys the time to run this country, you know, as the chairman of the board. And what have you given us? You have lost wars. You have ravaged our economy. You have built up a deficit, which is now, you know, in trillions of dollars. Our debt has gone up. And we are that much poorer. And you guys have not done what you were promised to do. Do you think perhaps part of it, Salim, is that when Ben Shapiro says that I don't want to hear what Trump has to say about Trump, I want to hear about what is the proper role of government, what does the Constitution say about a a particular policy, I don't think the people on the street want to care or hear anything about constitutionalism. I think that they want to have a plain-speaking person, and that's what's gravitating them towards a Donald Trump. He's a plain speaker. He speaks his mind. He says what he thinks is right, and people know that he believes what he says versus somebody out there talking the fine minutia of the Constitution. Precisely. But, I mean, we, but, we, but, but wait a minute. There's, yeah. a, there's another dimension to that question. Yeah. When he says, what's the proper role of government in my life? People aren't thinking in terms of constitution as an answer to that question. They're thinking in terms of, look, at, I'm paying more than half of my income to, to taxes. They're telling me where to go, where to sit, what my health care system's falling apart. That's government in your life. It's not constitutional, right? And a lot of those things that they're dealing with and coping with every day exist because they violate the principles of a constitution. They shouldn't be there. Like Obamacare, for starters, you know, our health care system here. Correct. I mean, So there wh- is a significance, and then, and then what you have is on one side the people who understand the deeper significance, and then the ones who experience the consequences of the things they might not understand at the root in their daily, day-to-day lives. And I think that's what I see happening with Trump. I, I don't know, but... But I agree you can't bring a constitutional debate into the, into the, into the public discussion because it doesn't solve anybody's problems. No, and as a matter of fact, if Cruz came out there and basically was talking constitution and the role of government all the time, he'd bore people to death.
Well, and I think that Trump is an entertainer, and he's giving people what they want. They want that sort of uh, machismo. They want that sort of man on the street kind of uh, person to gravitate toward to, but the man on the to street, represent them. But, but the man on the street do understand the position of the Constitution, the place of the Constitution in his or her life, because the man on the street is not for anarchy. It's not for the mob. Right. So it is not simply that you elect a person and the person goes and does anything. I mean, this is the nonsense which is coming out from the people with the Trump derangement syndrome, that they're talking about Trump as the reincarnation of a Mussolini or a Juan Peron, or any of these names, and what they forget, or what they undermine, or what they're so dismissive about America itself, that America is a country governed by a constitution. So the people you elect are supposed to work according to the principles laid down in the Constitution. You simply but isn't don't. That, isn't that no, their objection? No, no, but here is it. Let me not. come back to it. You, 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 you don't just open the hood of your car without knowing how inside the bonnet the machine works. Mm -hmm. So the common man is voting for a person who will know how the machine works or enough of people will know how the machine works. The machine works, that is, the American Constitution works with checks and balances. So it is not simply any idea that you put on the, on the table. The idea has to be vetted through the system. That is, the policy had to be vetted through the system. So Obamacare was not vetted through the system. Nancy Pelosi famously said when she was asked, what is your law? She said, well, you will find out when it is passed. Mm. You know, 2,000-page 2000, 2000 document. So the people are saying, we have sent you over there repeatedly, and what you have given us is a failed system of governance, whether it is Obamacare, whether it is foreign policy, whether it is the question of debts and deficits. You have given us a failed policy series of this. And what we are now saying is, as shareholders, that you do not deserve to go back. We are going to send people back who will deliver. One of the most attractive no, no. things, just let me finish this talk, one of the most attractive thing about this phenomenon, uh, the Trump phenomenon, is that the people look at Trump, those who are voting for him, they see he is as a man who is competent. Competent in the sense, if he, he's a builder, he's a businessman, and he delivers his project on time, otherwise he cannot make money. Now, what is the competence of a Marco Rubio or, uh, or, or of Ted Cruz or of Obama? They haven't built anything. They haven't done anything. Their resume well, doesn't no, stand I, up. Well, I wouldn't say that necessarily. Ted Cruz has successfully uh, comported himself in front of the Supreme Court on s several occasions. He's a lawyer. He's not a businessman. And, and that's and that, again, uh, this is the people judging, and this is not you, Robert, or me. I'm talking about mm -hmm. the phenomena. The people are watching the debate, and they keep saying, you know, we have this record, we have done this, we have fought this law, we have defended the First Amendment, the Second Amendment. What you have done is you have given money to the that is to the Trump. You've given money to the Democrats. You've given money to the Republican and attack him. But as what a businessman, right? So <laughs> what does Trump say? I mean, these are all happening in the public. What does Trump say? I have created 10,000 jobs. What have you done? Yeah. You have not created one job. What do the shareholders say? We want a man who knows how to create jobs. Mm -hmm. We want a man who knows how to get the economy going. But would you think but that... But again, that's not governance. They're two different things. And sometimes that's not governance. Sometimes a great businessman could be a terrible, terrible politician. But that's the point. That's the issue of, again, the Congress. The Congress works the machine. Trump brings in the policy or whoever brings in he's the policy. Reagan of, brings in the policy. He's simply the head Obama. administrator. 
Tamam? He's simply the head administrator. Well, let's go back to the constitution precisely. The constitution has three elements in it. It's a very small document, by the way, the American mm-hmm. Constitution. There are three elements. There's the executive, which is the president, who's responsible for, as a commander-in-chief, for maintaining the security and protection of the, uh, of, the, of the republic. Then there is the Congress, the Senate and the House, that is responsible for legislation. And then there is the referee, the just Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. You know? So what the people are electing in terms of the president, all the president, going back to George Washington, is an executive head of a company. Exactly. Like I said, like I said a head administrator yeah, who correct. has yeah, a thousand people under him who already know how to do their job. Now, precisely. Now, precisely. There's a bureaucracy. There yes. is a legislature. So that you, are, the, you are electing the executive head, and then you are electing the Congress, which is the people who are going to pass the legislation. And whether the legislation is properly done or not, that is the responsibility of the Supreme Court. Now, that's all well and fine, but that, that's all process. What about the, what you want the process? to lead to. And this comes back down to the issues that affect everybody's daily life. And it, and it occurred to me that there's no way for people to know exactly what Trump stands for. Even in those clips we played, there was a lot of misinformation I have to, I have to put in there. For example, um, Brittany Pounders mentioned single-payer system, right? She just said, and you guys know what single-payer is. Well, on the last time you and I did the show together, we played a clip from Trump, and you know what he said? He said, quote, Single-payer works in Canada, but I prefer a private system. So how come all of a sudden single-payer is being attached on him, right? And, and he says a lot of things. He goes one way, he goes the other, you really don't know, and then somebody just hears him say a word like, and, and associates it with Canada. And, of course, it's not really working in Canada. It, it's, the, it's the Achilles heel of the whole health care system of Canada is that single-payer system, which Ontario, by the way, is the only one that has it, not, not all the rest of the provinces. And uh, so how do we really even know what the man stands for? There's no way to, to cut through all the crap. Well, that's so what I was going to ask you too, Salim, along the same vein. I think that the people have a visceral response to Trump, not so much cerebral as they might have for Cruz, but a visceral response. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of emotion, and politics is about emotion. It all goes all the way back to David Hume, you know, reason and passion. So we are at a moment in time in the American politics, which is at a crossroad. Uh, uh, the system is greatly affected by what has happened over the last 25 years. And now the people are coming out and making a judgment about it. I mean, take the issue about illegal immigration or undocumented worker. This has been on the table going all the way back to Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan was the one who gave amnesty, I think it was in 1986. Uh, And at that time, the numbers were something like 3 million undocumented workers that he gave amnesty to. But the condition on which he signed the amnesty bill was that the problem will be fixed. In effect, the border will be controlled. Mm-hmm. Well, that was 1986. 30 years later, uh, the estimates are anywhere between 11 million, which is what the politicians are talking about, and 30 million. And Trump comes along and says that, you know, you guys have failed. I'm going to build a wall. And what you are talking about, Robert, is exactly the people says, yes, we need the wall. We need to finish this argumentation that is going on. So what about the politicians who are opposing him, that is both on the GOP side and the Democratic side? They want to spin all sorts of various policy matter and the fine details about it. 
And so the people are saying, that is the vast majority of the people are saying, well, this is the establishment talking who doesn't do the job. <laughs> They're protecting themselves. Now, who is the establishment? Just give you a con one concrete example. I mean, this election is going on. We are talking not only about the presidential election. We are also talking about the congressional elections. Look at the GOP side. Mm -hmm. Give you one example. John McCain, he's running for his seat in Arizona. Trump is beating uh, uh, all the Republican candidates in Arizona, which is basically Cruz now, by 20 points. Whereas John McCain might lose his seat. He's running neck and neck with his Democratic opponent. What is happening? Well, John McCain is running for the Senate seat, having been there for 30 years. So this is the problem of incumbency. People are also tired with incumbency. I think we just have experienced that here in the city of it, London, Ontario, where they kicked <laughs> everybody out. Precisely. Where they just got tired of the whole crew. So the people can see that, whether it is a, a people in a House of Representatives and a Senate, you have all of these people, Mitch McConnell, uh, I may say McCain, all of them who have been there 25 years, 30 years, 36 years, and they haven't done their job. There was a one very classic moment in the, in the primary debate with Lindsey Graham. And Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, was hitting out at Trump from his stage, which was the undercard debate, that Trump doesn't know anything about foreign policy, you know, that they have been dealing with foreign policy, especially the issue of war, the Middle East, for the last 15 years. Trump came out and he was asked that question. This is what Lindsey Graham says about you. You don't understand foreign policy. You don't understand military policy. They have been dealing with it for 15, 20 years. Trump was a one-line answer. Well, that's the problem. They've been dealing with it for 15, 20 years and haven't done their job. <laughs> Well, that's a good place to take a quick break right now as we listen in to the fictional presidency of 1933's Gabriel Over the White House, a movie starring Walter Houston as President Judson Hammond, who, much to everyone's surprise in the movie, turns out to be kind of a Donald Trump when he decides to take charge. And of course, the actual and real president of the U.S. in 1933 was Franklin D. Roosevelt, a Democrat who has, as the 32nd president, had just taken office in March of that year and kept that office for some 12 years running following Herbert Hoover. So let's listen in and we'll return on the other side of this. Mr. Beekman, instruct the members of my cabinet to meet me in one hour. Mr. President, an hour is hardly time. I expect every member to be present in one hour. Yes, sir. I've known Judge longer than any of you. He's been a very sick man, and we've got to humor him. Yes, but we've got to think of the party. Yes, right. yes, sir. Well, no matter what happens, the party comes first. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. President. Sit down, gentlemen. We're confronted with an ugly situation, Judd. I mean the Army of the Unemployed. I call on you as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy. Give me authority to mobilize and keep these ruffians in their camps. You want to declare war? We've got to uphold the law. What law? Something must be done at once or this armed mob will descend on us. Run riot all over Washington. Every citizen of the United States should be ensured the elementary necessities for keeping life within his body. This cabinet, every member of Congress, each office holder, is answerable directly to the public conscience. Gentlemen, I refuse to call out the army against the people of the United States. What is that? And I refuse to accept that. Discussion on this subject is closed. Now be careful. I might resign on you. Your resignation is accepted. Oh, well, now, wait a minute, Judge. I was only suggesting... Your resignation is accepted. You have my permission to withdraw. Gentlemen, I suggest you read the Constitution of the United States. You'll find the President has some power.
Mr. Mr. President, 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 you may proceed. May I ask why Secretary of State Brooks resigned? He didn't resign. I fired him. I fired him because he's an old-fashioned politician, incapable of being Secretary of State. Furthermore, he insists upon calling out the army to keep the unemployed from marching on Washington. Too bad the president cannot be quoted. This president can be quoted. This president wants to be quoted. You can wait for You're listening to Just Right on WBCQ 5130. We're in studio uh, with our guest, Salim Mansur, and I have a question for you, Salim. I've gotten a correspondence from a friend who is against Trump, and I asked her um, for some specifics. And one of them was, which sort of struck me, she said that he is philosophically and or ideologically formless himself, and people see in him what they want to see, so they are in essence defending their own irrational feelings when they defend him, even when, to any objective viewer, he has simply gone too far or is being a hypocrite or when he simply makes no sense. And I have to agree with that impression that I get of Trump, that he is um, ideologically formless, philosophically formless, and is there a danger when you get a character up that? It's almost like a Justin Trudeau here in Canada who, who does not spout policy so much as gives a person something to latch on to because they see something of themselves in him. Is there a danger in that? There's always a danger in, 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 in the sense that you might end up voting for somebody uh, who is contrary to everything you stand for. And, and that might happen in this instance also. But I go back to the issue of the American democracy, Republican democracy. Nobody walks into a public office, especially the highest public office, and which is the presidency and which is the greatest prize in the American political system, walks into that office without having gone through a thorough vetting. And that's what is happening. The Trump derangement system is that the people who are against Trump, for whatever reason, they're scratching their head off. The why is the public do not share their view? <laughs> I always have that same feeling. That's How right. come everybody doesn't well, think everybody, like me? That's right. And, and that's where I make the difference between the ideologues and the people. The people are not ideologues. You know, they take comfort in their country. This is the American. They're very proud about their country. They're very proud about its history. They're very proud about, I'm talking about the general mass of people. And so the people who are voting for Trump in this instance, if we're talking about Trump, are proud people. And they have been ignored. You can talk about the blacks in America and try to go out and reach out to the blacks. You can go out and reach out to the gay and lesbian population. You can go out and reach out to the Hispanics. But so God damn you if you try to reach out to the middle class white people across America, the flyover country, then you become a racist and a bigot. Apparently so. Exactly. And that's what is happening right now. I mean, as I look at the pictures of the Trump rallies, this is the flyover country. This is the country where the people work hard, play by the rules. The mothers bring up their children. This is a question of homeschooling, going to church, who, who uh, uh, Obama called the bitter clingers. They understand what is Second Amendment. They don't have to be constitutional lawyers to understand that. They understand First Amendment, and they've been choking on their political correctness because they cannot speak out their mind. And here comes along a man with whom they can relate.
A refreshing. Uh, exactly. Values. And then these are the very people who also understand the Constitution. So if this man, let's say, is hypothetically a Mussolini, then the Congress has a job to do. That is to impeach him and throw him out. Once which they can do, of course. Which exactly they can do. You've, spo- you've written recently about the presidency of Eisenhower. Precisely. And um, Bob, I know you grew up in Eisenhower's era. I think perhaps Salim, mm-hmm. you did too. I'm a little younger than no, that. No, I didn't. For me, it's no. been going back. And I've been going back in this period trying to understand him. But what I want to ask you okay. about the Eisenhower period was yes. that at that time, it was post-war. Everything was just um, pie in the sky. Everybody was happy. Well, I shouldn't say everybody, but there was a general feeling of well-being in the United States and Canada and perhaps even the world. Um or at least the Western world, the victors in the war. Um, Even the losers. Is this what people are seeing in a Donald Trump when he said, let's make America great again? Are they hearkening back to a time when Eisenhower was president? Well, they're hearkening back to their own memories. So Eisenhower became president 60 years ago. That's long before when I was around. I mean, I was around. I was a baby. I, I have no memory of it. I was going back to Eisenhower in this period to understand uh, uh, Republican politics. And I've been making the distinction that Republican is in the name because America is a republic. The first political party in America was Democrat-Republicans. That was the party of Jefferson. And then the party of John Adam was the Federalists. The Federalists died out. The Democrat and Republicans split as the Civil War approach. And so the Democrats became, later after the Civil War, the segregationists. They are the defenders of the blacks. They are the KKK. And the Republicans are the people who emancipated the blacks. They're not the defenders of the blacks. Exactly. So, you know, once you go back to history, the question of Eisenhower is very fascinating uh, because Eisenhower was not a part of any political establishment. Well, he's he very would, progressive as a Republican, too. He, well, again, he continued he, the, all of FDR's programs. The, 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 again, these things become, the, words become ideological or were non-ideological. To be progressive in 1952 has a different meaning to mm. being progressive in 2016 with Obama or Hillary Clinton and so on and so forth. True. Words evolve and words take on a different connotation. The point is that Eisenhower was not a politician. So Ted Cruz and Ben Shapiro will say he doesn't know Constitution, so we can't elect him. (laughs) He was the greatest commander. He was the winning general. And he came in, and Truman would have given him the ticket to run for the Democrats. But he chose to run for the Republicans because there had been, as I said, from 52, uh, 32 to 52, a stretch of democratic control. And when you were there for that long on time, then things start to stink. As a matter of fact, in his cabinet, uh, his first cabinet, he didn't uh, bring anybody in who was a politician. They were all businessmen. None of them were his friends. They were people of competency. Precisely, because you see, again, people who talk about constitution, they don't understand constitution. The presidency is the monarch who is constrained and constrained now by the 22nd Amendment only to two terms. Mm -hmm. So he is technically a monarch. He's a Tudor monarch, and the president comes in. He's elected by the people. He's the only office in America that is elected by the people from coast to coast to coast. Right? Every other office has got a regional, local. The senators are elected from the state, the congressmen from the riding, and so on and so forth. So president represents the we, the people. He comes in, and he surrounds himself with the Arthurian knights of the armor. That's the cabinet. 
Mm-hmm. The cabinets are not elected position. These are appointed positions. These are prerogative of the president. The cabinet is vetted by the Congress, but they cannot stop him. And so that's what it is. The people then elects the legislature, which is the House and the Senate. And their job is to keep the country on an even keel. And if the president betrays the Constitution, which he's sown to protect, then they can impeach him and remove him. So there is checks and balances. But what Precisely. I'd like to, what, what, what I want to just mirror here or see that there is a mirror in, in history is that he had as his cabinet businessmen. And Absolutely. what is Donald Trump? He's a businessman. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I, I see good things and bad things in Trump. I see good things and bad things in Cruz. I can vote for, I mean, I can't vote at all in the American election, but I can put my uh, voice behind either one of them for any particular reason and take it away for other reasons. Absolutely. But there is something to be said for finally having a businessman at the helm, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, that's what the sharer is. It's not you and me. Again, I I go back. I'm, I'm looking at the phenomena. And what is so fascinating that when... Uh, 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 Bob and I met six months ago on the stage were 17 people let's let's look at it the Mm -hmm. wedding process people who don't understand wedding process there were nine governors all elected right there were five senators there was a businesswoman and there was a doctor and there's a business tycoon six months later through the wedding process all that you're left with is a business tycoon and a senator, uh-huh. and the people are deciding who they want in the White House, right? So that's the wedding process, and, and people might end up deciding that they prefer a senator. But they've had senators and congressmen through the 20th century into the 21st century. They elected a man twice who was a first-term senator. No record of achievement. Senators, as, as Trump says, are all talk, no action. Eisenhower could have said that, all talk and no action. He's the guy who went and defeated Hitler. He not only def- think about this, as I was thinking, here's a man, Eisenhower, and there was a president, Roosevelt, and then Truman. They fought the two mightiest industrial powers of that time. 1941, the war begins. That's the American war begins. And May of 1945, the war ends. You count the months. In 36 months, the war is over. They have defeated and smashed, and they have come home to build America. And that's Eisenhower. That's the 50s. Trump's people are saying, what the heck have these people been doing? Since 9-11, we have spent 3 to $4 trillion in the Middle East, and we have nothing to show. You're going to elect Hillary Clinton? This is the woman with Benghazi? This is the woman that has given us Libya. This is the woman and her president that has given us Syria and the genocide that is taking place. And so the people are saying, we've had enough of these politicians who are all talk and no action. Well, at least the Republican side of the United States, because this is only a GOP um, vetting process. It would be very interesting to see if and when he becomes the GOP candidate, what the American people say. Precisely. And so this is it. I mean, at, at the end of the day, America is a non-ideological country. Again, the people make mistakes. The Democratic Party is a coalition. The Republican Party is a coalition. The Democrats has their big donors, you know, and they have their trade unions and their, uh, and their organization. And on the Republican side, there are big donors and there are businessmen and there are small people and, and, and small businessmen and so on. So it's a coalition of interests. What is the coalition of interests that comes together to represent 
in the larger sense, the American interest. Mm -hmm. That's a good point to end uh, this quarter of the show on. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back to conclude our conversation with Salim Mansour. Mr. President, the generals told you my plans. All I need is your authority to mobilize the army and disperse these unemployed vagrants when they reach Baltimore. The Secretary of the War Department will supply food, shelter, and medical requirements to these men in their camp tonight. Mr. President, are you out of your mind? In 1918, we forced four million men to accept the hospitality of the government. But that was war. This is war. The enemy is starvation. At one time or other, we gave millions of tons of food to the starving Russians, the starving Chinese, and the starving Belgians. Now we can feed our own people. As President of these United States, my first duty is to the people. But if you encourage these ruffians, they'll... I haven't the time or inclination for argument. Resign or get on with your job. Mr. Beaton, will you please make arrangements for me to leave for Baltimore early in the morning? He mustn't go and face that mob. There's no telling what might happen to him. I thought you said a simple, honest man could solve everything. I'm beginning to have a faith in him I never had before. I know, but he's way ahead of me. The way he thinks is so simple and honest that it sounds... It sounds a little crazy. He's doing the things you wanted. And if he's mad, it's a divine madness. Look at the chaos and catastrophe the sane men of this world have brought about. We're back with Salim Ansar. Salim... Do you think that Donald Trump is too much of a bore, too much of a crude uh, man to be the representative of the, of, of the United States? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it in this fashion. Uh, I see him on the stage with, with, with an act, a persona, that has sent out a, that sends out a message. Uh, right on the first debate, when Megyn Kelly asked him the first question and he hid back, his answer was, neither do I nor Americans have time for political correctness. And with that, he laid the marker right through till this moment, whether it was taking on John McCain, that he is not a hero, or whether Bush, uh, Bush 43 was a mistake going into Iraq, or getting a uh, with with the Pope, when the Pope said he's not a Christian, and you know he went after the Pope, the persona that Trump has put on the stage, and the people are watching him, is this guy will hit back, hit back in contrast to Mitt Romney and John McCain in 2008 and 2012 that basically surrendered. Mm-hmm. They didn't fight back during the election, you know. So that's the persona. One must be able to make the distinction between his persona on the stage as opposed to man who he is. After all, he is a New Yorker. He's a business tycoon. He has been shaking hands with presidents and prime ministers and kings and queens and dining and mm-hmm. da- and dancing. And you look at his family and you can see that there is two completely contrasting figure over here. Do you think so, Donald Trump would even care in the end if he could get elected under the Democrat ticket, would he have just has done that just as easily? Well, recently, recently, uh, uh, Roger Stone, who had been connected with uh, uh, Donald Trump, going all the way back to when Donald Trump was a young man in his 20s, uh, pointed out that when the 1980 election, 
uh, in New York, there was no campaign for Ronald Reagan. There was nobody around. All the donors were, you know, on uh, uh, Carter's side. And so uh, uh, Reagan's campaign team came to New York looking for building up a, 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 a donor's network. Mm-hmm. And at was at that moment that Trump and his father stepped in and Trump has been giving money, uh, gave money to the Reagan campaign. That's how old and back it goes back to. As a businessman, I think Trump is far more at home in the Republican Party, which is again a collection. But as a New Yorker, he's at home with the liberal values about what is, you know, the, the changes that have taken place in American culture over the last 30, 40 years, you know, mm-hmm. divorces, the place of women, and, and so on and so forth. Can I bring the conversation back a bit, if you don't mind? We started off with the Trump derangement syndrome, a, right. coin that, a term that you've coined. Correct. <laughs> and, okay. I, and I appreciate it. I'm very good. Um, but then we talked about, we went right into those who are on the, the GOP side having this syndrome, but but surely you could say that anybody on the left who is rabidly anti-Trump has this TDS. Yes. Um, for example, you have Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, preventing the police from arresting anybody at the, at the Chicago rally, and then Trump had to cancel because of that. You have George Soros fellows chaining themselves to vehicles and blocking traffic so that people can't go to his rallies. You have people inciting riots at his at his rallies who are definitely have been identified as being from the left establishment. These pup people, wouldn't you say they suffer from TDS just uh, as much as those on the right? They do, and I think in some ways they are also panicking because uh, what I see uh, in this phenomena is as follows. Uh, nobody on the Democratic side or on the left side is engaging with other uh, uh, GOP candidates because the other GOP candidate doesn't seem to have the sort of appeal that Trump is bringing in, which is the crossover vote. So where is the crossover vote coming from? I mean, you can say, you can slice it, slice up in, in the given situation that there is one-third uh, Republican voters, one-third Democratic voters, and the one-third is, is the independent voter. Mm-hmm. And any political leader who is going to win the presidency must be able to expand from the one-third into that 50 plus one. Yes. And that 50 plus one will come from, that the balance will come from the independent. And that's where the tr- Trump's attraction is. It is the crossover vote, and that's where, you know, the panic is, and to try to create the problem and intimidate the public from going across the line to look here and eventually support Trump. Well, I have to say that there's at least one aspect of the Trump phenomenon that, that I appreciate, and that is that he's pissing off the right people. And for that, I'm almost willing to say that he'd have my support if I was an American. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much time we have, but say... You Not know, much, he, just a couple minutes. <laughs> come, yeah, yeah, very quickly, I, uh, Trump came out and said recently, and he said that in his debate, that Islam hates us. And here, you all know I'm a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And what is my reaction to this? Islam hates us, Trump says, and I say this is a teaching moment for Muslims. And the Muslim must come out and now stand up and say what Islam is as opposed to Islamism. And the more this happens, from my point of view, is to smoke out the Islamists, which is what 
uh, have who who have come to represent the Muslims in America, who have penetrated the Democratic Party. So the Lib Left alliance with the Islamists has given Islam itself the bad name. My wish would be to see that Trump push hard on this matter, so that just as today, nobody is going to stand up and have a good word for the Nazis and will make, say, an alliance with the Nazis and will make the distinction between the Nazis and the German. That as this debate unfolds, the teaching moment will be that the people will come to recognize Islam is a religion, just as Christianity is, just as Judaism is, just as Buddhism is. But Islamism is a political ideology. It's almost like when you're talking about conservatives and conservatism, there's a difference when a way of life becomes a political ideology. Absolutely correct. I mean, to me, a conservatism in terms of an idea is a philosophical outlook. It's a state of mind. Mm-hmm. It's an attitude. You know, a conservative is a person whose staple is history, is based upon history and philosophy. And a conservative is a person who is by nature uh, skeptical. That's the Socratic dialogue, whereas an ideologue is a doctrinaire, is dogmatic, who excludes by creating a line, a demarcation, that you know you are with us or you're not with us, us and them phenomena. The conservative is not interested in that. But a conservative, when he walks into a political party and wears the hat of a political party, say a Winston Churchill, then obviously he's running for that political party, that team. Here I think the difference would be, say you are in a soccer stadium and you're seeing, you know, two teams playing or say baseball, you know, you're seeing New York Yankees playing with with the Boston Red Sox. And the commentator then becomes a defender of one of the two teams as opposed to sitting back and making commentary on the excellence of baseball. (laughs) Well, we're, we're, we're coming up to the end of the show, Salim. I don't know how it's going to look. Any predictions? Do you think uh, well, I he think, has a chance know, of winning? Uh, I, I, I think Trump is on the way to being the nominee. The, the next round of uh, primaries uh, moves to northeast uh, of the United States, which is uh, Trump's home territory. He wins New York. He wins Pennsylvania. He wins New Jersey uh, and, 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 and so on. And then goes to California, and he wins California. Tomorrow he wins Arizona, and he's very, very close to winning the majority. That is 1237. Uh, the Stop Trump moment, uh, movement is, is desperate. That's, that's the uh, well, Trump derangement syndrome. The, you saw that with Romney coming sure. out. You know, I mean, a, a gentleman would be a person who would step back and, and, and say, you know, I had my turn, and now it's for the rest to play their game. It's like a pitcher who has been to the World Series and lost is now sitting in the uh, sideline and trying to call the pitching of the guy who's playing in the World yes, Series. Yeah. <laughs> Well, not, it'll, not be, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, even if Trump ever got elected president, if he was ever accepted the way that Obama was, but uh, that remains to be seen. We're out of time for this this show this week. So everyone, thank you, Salim, on behalf of all our listeners and ourselves. And the rest of you, please join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be Let me just say I think Kevin looks good in a suit Thank you sir Thank you sir
He looks a little like Secret Service. He does. Yeah, yeah. And you're the only guy who could get him to wear it. Now, I, I was mentioning earlier, we landed yesterday. And this is an example of, of life in the bubble. We landed at, at the fairground down in Costa Mesa. I see the fairground where I think we're having this town hall. I said, well, why don't we walk over there? Secret Service says, no, sir, it's 750 yards. <laughs> So I was trying to calculate. Yeah. Well, that's like a five-minute walk. Yes, sir. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>